think about how devastating it is to be on a team with a leader that sets unreasonable goals, that you will never achieve them. You're, you're sitting there, you know, failing. 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 I know. We talk about failure. Some battles you feel like you lost. And survival. Some battles you feel like you win. It's tough. I had to make some tough decisions. We've all faced failure, but what steps do we take to launch ourselves into success? I'm Sarah Brown. There is life, a blessing. Your and then what we do with it. And this is Failing Forward. I am thrilled today to have Elizabeth Edwards. Elizabeth, I don't know if you know this, but you were secretly on my bucket list of people that I wanted to have on the show for, uh, I now I can say a couple years. Oh, awesome. The show has been around that long, but you really have. Uh, listeners, Elizabeth is the founder and managing partner of H Venture Partners. And to me, she's... Um, one of these rock star women that lives in a man's world. And so anytime I hear about somebody like that, I'm like, oh, I want to know them and meet them. So thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to have this conversation. And it's great that we have um, such a strong woman leader in our city. I know we have many others, but in this area, it's, it's even more special. So yes, welcome, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. All right, girls. So let's start. Tell us a little bit about where you're from, where you grew up. Give us that background. Tell us about your family. Yeah. So I was born in Virginia Beach, Virginia, which uh, you may think, oh, wow, you love the beach, you know, vacation kind of town. Uh, We were there for the Navy. (laughs) So a bit of a different uh, reason to be there. And uh, didn't stick around very long. Uh, both my parents are from Ohio, lived in Columbus, Toledo, and then finally uh, Cincinnati, where I grew up in Pleasant Ridge. So went to Nativity for a couple of years and then Ursuline for high school, went away to college, uh, but came back uh, to Cincinnati. So I, I was- Am I all- right on University of Michigan? Yes, I defected okay. to the north. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, and you know, I, I felt like I needed to be colder in order to really focus on my studies. Sure, and sure. It worked. Uh, it worked. <laughs> so interestingly, we I had another guest, Kate Nelson. Yeah. Who also was born in Virginia Beach. Did you know that? Maybe she wasn't born there, but they lived there for part of her life. Yeah. And her oh, father yeah. was in the military as well. So I'm I'm curious, how did that impact your life, him being in the military? What was that like growing up? Yeah, you know, I feel like uh, being part of a military family at a young age, I was glued to the news uh, much more than my peers. And so, especially in Ohio, because, um, you know, my mom and I were living in Ohio uh, and I remember, you know, Desert Storm and then, I don't know, the series of desert conflicts. It seems seems like we never really, you know, we never really totally got out of the Middle East and he was deployed all the time. So um, I would watch the news and I would see... um, you know, uh, reports about, um, you know, wars and conflicts and, and potential conflicts. And I think at a very young age was just a lot more worried mm-hmm. and aware because it was personal. Um, you know, to me, uh, you know, these global conflicts and, um, and just globalization in general, but these global conflicts were something that were affecting my everyday life. You know, it was whether or not I was going to see my dad and whether or not my dad was going to come home, which I know is normal for pretty much any military family. Um, That's not normal for the general population. True. Yeah. And I think, you know, there are definitely, um, if you, if, if you're in different parts of the country, different parts of the world, um, where military bases are, you've got a concentration of military families. I definitely felt like, you know, kind of growing up, um, especially, I would say, you know, kindergarten, um, first, second, third, fourth, fifth grade, um, when a lot of this stuff was really kind of hitting the fan <laughs> for, yeah. uh, for my family. Um, you know, I was much more in tune with uh, politics and, um, 
you know, what was some of the drivers of these conflicts. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I think it was, it was eye-opening um, at, a, at a young age. Um, is your dad okay? Like alive? Yeah, and yeah. He, you know, he, he was in the Navy for quite a long time, um, retired from the Navy, uh, loved it. Um, you know, I, I think he got into it because he really wanted to fly cool airplanes and he got to do that. So, um, yeah, you know, very, very blessed, no injuries, great health, yeah. great benefits, you know, that's right. So who do you think you take after more, your mother or your father? Because if your father was a pilot, mm -hmm. sounds like he is not risk averse. That would be true. <laughs> um, you know, uh, probably my mom, honestly. Um, my mom is, my mom has always been a big supporter of um, women's rights, women in the workforce, um, go women. Um, you know, she's, she's your best girlfriend, primary cheerleader. Um, you know, growing up, she was definitely always pushing me to, you know, try new things and, and get in there, participate. Um, I actually don't know which one of my parents, I, I would say, yeah, I mean, look, if you're going to, if you're going to fly off an aircraft carrier, you're, you're pretty risk loving. Um, yeah. So I guess maybe that's where that comes from. <laughs> yes. Hey, did your mom work outside of the home? She did. Um, she did. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and she really laid out, so I'm an only child, uh, and she really laid out for me from a very young age, which I thought was really cool and, and only now truly appreciate. Um, she really laid out a pathway of, of what it would look like for me when I got to the point that I was, you know, uh, having kids and, and juggling a career and all of that, my mom, um, you know, she went to Miami for college. She went on to get her MBA. Um, she went into the software world. So she mm. was, she was a VP of sales for, you know, startup tech company. She had a lot of, uh, a lot of success you know, as an executive woman, um, but was also, I would say, pretty, pretty free with sharing some of her experiences that maybe were not so great. And some of the challenges that came with being an executive woman who, you know, if, you, if you're graduating, I think it was like 1976 is when they graduated, sorry, something like that, 73, um, somewhere in there. So, you know, my, my parents are 65. Uh, you know, my mom was definitely of that generation where um, only about half the women, you know, were, were working um, and having kids. So my grandmother took yeah. care of me big time when I was, really? yeah, when I was little and my mom always said, look, you know, when, when you, uh, when you get into the workforce and whatever you want to do, you go for it because when you're ready to have kids, I'm going to retire. Stop it. Yeah. And she did. No, this is, this is the crazy thing. So like, okay, mom, you know, you're telling me this. I'm like five years old. Who cares? <laughs> and, and she kept telling me that I think she, she also wanted to have a bigger family. Yeah. Um, and so I think she always was kind of oriented in that way where it's like, well, I'm going to have sort of my, my second set of kids, you know, yes. uh, which she definitely does. I have two little girls. You They're too. four and two. And she's with them right now. <laughs> you know, they're, uh, and so she's kind of, she's able to do what maybe she couldn't do with you because your grandmother was able to do those. Totally. So I think you know, that's really, I wonder if that's going to start to be a trend. I think it's a great trend. Mm -hmm. Because it, think about back in the day, grandparents lived with you, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. that, so that wasn't my experience, but I had a couple friends whose grandparent grandmothers lived with them and they were so close with them. Mm-hmm. My whole, how, how beautiful is that? It's, it is a great thing. A lot of research has been done on this, um, you know, in other cultures like India, where that is, you know, just multiple generations living in the home. It's, it's a really healthy thing for your kids because you have, it's not just mom and dad, it's mom, dad, grandma, grandpa. Um, you have the feeling of a support system and sort of the perspective of 
many generations. Um, your parents are not as pressured. Um, yeah, it's, it's awesome. We're so lucky. Um, yeah. So I, I have so many questions for you, but, um, okay. And I know you want to talk, you're going to want to talk about your failing stories and what you've learned and everything like that. Okay. My first question is this, uh, have you watched social experiment on Netflix? No. Okay. So <laughs> that's going to be our 2.0 because I want you to watch it. And then because you've done investments in tech companies, yeah, I want, I'm so curious to see what you think about it. So, okay. Listeners, that's going to be our follow-up. Okay. Then our, my second question is how did you get so successful in choosing startups mm. to invest in that became huge successes like Peloton? Because mm. I know that your scorecard mm -hmm. is above average on smart investments. How did you do that? Yeah, well, we, uh, we use a scorecard, number one. Um, did you create the scorecard? I did not. Uh, okay. My partner, Madeline, created the scorecard. And then who's your partner, Madeline? Madeline Ludlow. Talk about Stop awesome. It. Yes. She's your business partner? Yes. Sorry, Why I didn't that? know that. No, I didn't. <laughs> yeah. Okay, we have another awesome. story on that on the side. But when I owned Blown, the blow dry bar, she was an advisor to us. And we would go in like with our tail between our legs, oh. like, oh my God, this isn't making it. And she'd be like, okay, we're going to look at it this way and this way. She's like, she's the best mentor you could ever possibly have. She's so even keeled. Um, yeah. yeah. She's and got she, such a great spirituality too. And like an yes. outlook on life. Yes. She oh my does. God. She she's does. sort of my hero. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, all right. So scorecard there. So I'm just always trying to be like her basically. I think, that's a good per I think that's a really good person to be like. Yeah. Well, so, so Madeline, you know, uh, Madeline's very process oriented and I, I started working with Madeline, uh, I guess, uh, year five of being a VC. So I've, I've been doing this for about 15 years. Um, that's the other key. Um, you know, you want to get good at anything. You just keep practicing and, and doing it over a long period of time. Um, the, I was very lucky to get into the industry early and then working with Madeline and Mark at West Capital where Madeline, you know, being very process oriented had already, uh, pulled together what I think is one of the most important components of what we do, which is having that scorecard. How do you score investment opportunities quantitatively, qualitatively, hit on all of the important things? Um, because we meet with so, so many companies and it's kind of easy to get distracted by shiny objects. Um, you want to make sure yeah. that, you know, it's like, yeah, that's a cool product, but uh, the management team has no idea what they're doing. And, you know, cool product plus terrible management team is not going anywhere. Right. Um, there, there are a lot of those and vice versa. Um, you know, cool management team that's not, you know, not got something that's, that's different enough um, and big enough. So um, that's where, that's really where the, you know, where it comes from. It's also just putting a practice behind it. I think it's, it, it really is like any, um, like any practice. If you're into yoga, if you're into tennis, um, meditation, you know, yes. the num number of hours that you're going to dedicate and just that pursuit of, Hey, you know, I'm going to get better and better and better at this. So that's what we try to do, um, at our firm. And did you always know that you wanted to do this? I knew, I knew that I wanted to do this about two years into my career. Um, so I kind of found out about venture capital post MBA, but really early. Okay. And so I was at Deloitte working for Diana O'Brien, who's now, yes. she's yes. now retired. 
Um, She just retired, but uh, she retired as chief marketing officer of Deloitte. Talk about another amazing woman to work for. Um, Uh, Amazing. And she's got like that Madeline quality too, which is just wisdom, perspective. She listens. She says- Honesty. Huh. So worked with Diana. She put me on some of the most amazing projects. And one of those projects was working with uh, Johnson & Johnson doing front-end M&A work. So basically identifying technologies and brands for a j to license and acquire. Okay. And the people on the other side of the table were just so cool because they were the entrepreneurs. They were the inventors, the technologists. And I'm like, how do I go be on that side of the table? Because that's where all the cool stuff is. And I want to go be part of that. And... And then was able to, you know, figure out a pathway into direct investing, you know, investing in venture deals. So if you could give our listeners a, um, like a quick tutorial on like a 101 mm-hmm. of maybe what you do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's actually a lot simpler um, than you would imagine. So you take the stock market, those are all companies that are publicly traded um, and they're big, right? So these are companies that are hundreds of millions or billions of dollars you know, in, in market cap. And we focus on companies that are not publicly traded. You know, They're privately held because they're started by entrepreneurs. You might have one or two or three, maybe 10, 15, 20 people max that work at these companies when we invest in them. And so their primary way of raising money um, is not through the stock market. It's not from banks. Uh, They raise money from angel investors and VCs. And so just like the the equity that you buy in the stock market, these are equity investments, um, only we're investing at this super, super early stage. So we don't have earnings reports from the past 10 years to, you know, look at, we have business plans okay. uh, and, and forecasts. Um, we probably have products or prototypes, you know, to look at um, or test out, but they're really, really early. So the valuations of these companies are, are much lower than what you would find in the stock market. Okay. Um, so to give you an example, Peloton, which is probably, you know, the best deal that I'll ever be part of in my career. Um, uh, That was a company that was the first consumer deal that I was ever part of. Uh, That was a $15 million company when we invested in January of 2014. They went public five years later for $10 billion. Um, That's why that'll probably be the best one. Right. <laughs> As and, and how do you learn about them? How did you find out yeah. about Peloton? Yeah. So most of the, I would say the, the really like, wow, companies come through other investors. Okay. And, and that was the case with Peloton. So that was uh, through another. Uh, like word of mouth. Yeah. Like, hey, yeah. I'm looking at this company. It's way too early for me, but I think the team is great. You should talk to them as, as how things happen. My goodness. Um, or, hey, uh, looking at this company, but it's consumer and I only do tech, so you should chat with them. And, and so that's the way that I would say the vast majority of the super high quality deals come in. Um, the other way is that we actively go and look for the companies that are in the stage and geography and sector. So we are consumer specialists. So here we are in Cincinnati. We're the number one consumer products company in the world, P&G. We have the largest grocer in the U.S., second largest retailer after Walmart and Kroger. We have serious consumer talent here. So if you're going to have a sector-focused venture fund uh, in Cincinnati, it, it's got to be a consumer-focused <laughs> venture fund if you're going to leverage any of the talent, in my opinion. Um, now, what's really interesting um, from, from our perspective as VCs, so you know, what's, what's really interesting in the venture capital landscape 
is only about 3% of venture dollars go to consumer products. Okay. Even that's, that's really small. Yes. Very small. Why is that? Because venture capital was started in Silicon Valley. So you think, you know, this. Uh, oh, and so they're going to focus on tech. They're going to focus on tech. Um, and in fact, if you look at the history of the Bay Area, um, where you start out with, you know, things like semiconductors and software and all that jazz, or, or then, you know, biotech, um, San Francisco has never been a consumer hub. Um, and this is going back to 1800s, 1900s, because of where it's physically located. Located, okay. You have Clorox, that's it. Um, huh. If you look at, if you look where, you know, where are all the major consumer and retail firms and therefore the talent? Because if you're thinking you want to start a mobile app, you want to start a mobile app in San Francisco, that's where you've got a lot of tech talent. Do you have a lot of CPG talent there? No. Um, right. Consumer insight, manufacturing, you know, branding, product development, you know, any of that, you don't have that there. Um, so most of it is, you know, kind of in the middle where we are. Yeah. That's what I was going to say right in the middle. Okay. So my question was, did you know you wanted to get into it? You said, yes, pretty, pretty early on. Is it hard to get into this? Yes. Mm-hmm. It is. Why? It is an extremely small industry. So if you think about the venture capital landscape, uh, it's, these are, you know, a few thousand small businesses. Okay. Um, you know, there are larger funds like Andreessen Horowitz, uh, Sequoia, Benchmark, Kleiner Perkins, um, where or NEA um, that have hundreds of people that work there. But the vast majority of funds, kind of like a long tail, if you look at the distribution of mm-hmm. um, these funds and like how big they are, um, you have thousands and thousands of funds where it's like two people work there. Okay. And so just in terms of like overall, how many people work in venture capital? I think there are more people today working at Procter and Gamble, period, than people working in, in venture capital. That's just a guess because I think you know, yeah, or or like Deloitte, um, where I was, you know, you have like a hundred thousand people globally that work for Deloitte. It that's so not- like so when you left Deloitte, how did you get into it? So initially, I went to go work with a family office. So okay. you know, a, a wealthy family that wanted to diversify out of real estate and into other types of tech and um, early stage companies. Uh, And so that was a really great kind of transition because I was able to really, you know, start to learn the industry, um, start to build a network and um, here locally, but then, you know, really we were investing all over North America. So from day one, I was really covering the geography that I still cover today. Uh, which is everything, you know, uh, north of the Rio Grande. <laughs> so you went and worked for them. Mm-hmm. And then what? I mean, how, how did you, how were you able to fund or take that leap to go on your own? Or did you join mm-hmm. Madeline and Mark? Yes. Yeah, so first family office, then Madeline and Mark, then went to go work for a consumer focused fund, small first time okay. fund. Uh, which was perfect because I knew that I really wanted to focus on consumer. Remember, that's where I started. I, I started working on brands like Tylenol for J&J. Right. But not much consumer investment was happening. Even Madeline, Mark, and I, we were investing in B2B software as a service, consumer fintech, medical devices. So really generalist uh, you know, strategies. And it was only until... Uh, you know, joining Maywick, where I was able to really focus on consumer. And there, we had 19 portfolio companies. It was, it was a busy, you know, busy several years, um, and really, really great experience. Because I kind of took my, I took everything that I learned with Madeline and Mark, applied it to consumer. Really saw that opportunity and said, Ah, here are the couple of things that are missing. 
One, if you want to invest in consumer, you better love female founders and really invest in that network. Because if you're not willing to do that, you will fail in consumer. 85%. Why? Because a lot, okay. 85% are female. Well, 85% of consumer purchasing is done by women Oh. and over half the founders. So this is like, un, it's unlike any other sector, I think, within venture in that it is so female dominated, both the, you know, the consumers, the shoppers, right? And then mm-hmm. the founders. In tech, you don't see over half of the founders are no. women, you know, oh. AI, blockchain, you know, even biotech. So you, you really have to be intentional about the culture, uh, about the network and the investments you're going to make in building your network um, in both the VC landscape, the, the founder networks. Um, and then secondly, the other thing that I learned about consumer is it ain't as easy as it looks. Mm-hmm. I mean, everybody thinks that, oh, well, I, I see brands on Instagram all the time. Like, right. Hey, would totally invest in Casper or yeah I mean I saw Peloton like in 2015 I would totally have invested in that company well you know there's a lot of other stuff that is happening especially as you get into uh as you get into CPG where it's food beverage uh beauty personal care fem care baby care fabric care home care all the cares when you get into those categories mm-hmm. where I'll just say adults have been doing important work for decades, mm-hmm. um, you can't just start a diaper company tomorrow and go, I'm going to compete against Pampers. Right. Uh, the technology, and this is where I just have so much respect for the absolute you know, world dominance, you know, for, you know, with companies like Procter and Unilever, Coca-Cola, um, you know, that the amount that they've invested in consumer insight, R&D, supply chain, and there are still, you know, so many opportunities, um, obviously, otherwise I wouldn't be doing this, to grow amazing businesses and to have a huge impact in these categories. But, what I've learned over my career is you have to have domain experts that are really going to uh, help mentor these brands that are going to um, opine on whether or not something's real technology or marketing fluff because yes. they've been in, you know, diapers or hair care, beauty, right? And they've seen it all. Like it might sound, these pitches sometimes, honestly, yeah. They would they would seem pretty exciting to you and even to yeah. me. Yeah. And then you put it in front of we have we have forty uh, over now over forty investors that are all C level um, executives of all the major consumer and retail companies, and they've seen a lot of pitches too. Yeah. They've seen a lot of R and D too. So so to be an investor. You have to be able to. You have to invest a certain amount, right? But then, are you, are your investors also committed to helping that company grow? Yeah, that's the that is the special sauce. Okay. And so, really early, we said basically we need we in, in order to build the number one consumer venture fund in the world over the next ten years, we need more expertise than anyone. And so, we're just we put together this massive matrix. We said we're going to get you know. We don't have beverage. Let's go. Let's go okay, talk hold to on. The- <laughs> hold on. I want you to state that vision again. We are building the number yeah. one consumer venture fund in the world over the next 10 years. I think um, that vision, what, number one, is so exciting. And number two, I think, listeners, what I'm learning this year is stating your vision and going for it has to be your number one. Like if you're setting a goal out for yourself, you got to think big mm-hmm. and you got to look, you got to look big, but you also have to claim it and you have to state it. Mm-hmm. And I love that you're doing that. I think that's amazing. Well, thank you. And, and I will add to that, which is 
You also have to have short-term goals that are achievable. Yep. And that's been that's been one of my failings. Um, and then I started reading this book by Leslie Blodgett, who's the founder of Bare Minerals. You got to get the book. Yes. It's called What's it called? Pretty Good Advice. Pretty Good <sighs> Advice. So okay. great title for a book, right? I mean, she started a billion-dollar beauty company, and it's yeah, it's a pun. Cute. It's cute. Um, I like that. But it, it starts, you know, she starts out talking about her childhood. Um, you know, uh, she fell in love with beauty at age 16 and, um, you know, worked at cosmetic counters and, and, and really came up, you know, from, I would say, the, the ground up and then went to work for some of the biggest, you know, beauty companies in, in the world before starting her own. So she had a ton of expertise before she launched but she made the point and it just really stood out to me. I was like, oh my God, this is what I've been doing wrong my whole life, my whole life. She said, do you, do you know uh, what high achieving people do? What, what do you think? Do they, do they set huge goals or do they set small goals? And I'm thinking, well, huge goals, huge. obviously, yeah. right? High, yes. high achievers, right? Like the bar is how high? No. High achievers want to achieve their goals. And so they set ladders of goals where it's this rung and then the next rung and the next rung because, and and think about it this way. And and she was also driving home the point of, think about how devastating it is to be on a team with a leader that sets unreasonable goals, that you will never achieve them. And you just, you're, you're sitting there, you know, failing. Every day, no matter how hard you try, you're going to fail because yes. the goal it's is defeating. not Yes. Uh, it's defeating. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So I did that for about three years before reading this book. Saved my life. <laughs> it's like, so oh. every year are you reset? Like how often are you setting your, your achievable goals? Is this like once a year? Is it quarterly? What, what's your discipline around that? Yeah. So, um, I would say, uh, you know, the, the big shift that, that happened here is I, you know, I, I took things like 10 year goals and made them 10 year goals as opposed to 12 month goals. That's, that's a good place to start. Yes. It's good to know where you're going, yes. but you know, how quickly you can get there, um, is also something to keep in mind. And so we, we update, um, we update our plans really quarterly, um, but they don't, they don't change so, lot. so much from year to year. So, uh, we use a, a pretty awesome strategic planning framework. That's like, what are the three key things? You know, your, you know, key your three rocks and, or yep. whatever that, yeah. What are the KPIs? So what are the goals that you're setting? How will you measure those? And then what are the, the tactics? Um, and so, you know, because we have a really clear handle on, well, here's, here's where we're trying to go. Um, here's the kind of success that we've been able to garner in the past. So mm-hmm. if we, you know, if we keep doing what we're doing and improve maybe a little bit, uh, what could we reasonably expect? And let's test and learn on, you know, on some of these different tactics. And so, you know, each quarter we're, we're cutting things We're you know, we're starting new things, but in general, it's, yeah, I I would say at this point or three years in, we have uh, a much, much better handle on what's an achievable goal this year. What's an achievable goal in five and in 10 years. So I know my listeners are probably like, okay, what was the story that she was going to share about a failure? (laughs) So I'm going to tee you up for that one. Oh man. Uh, I have so many. Um, So my big failure uh, in in really starting H Venture Partners um, was hubris, right? I mean, I had... I knew that I had some really great wins under my belt. I felt very confident about uh, the opportunity, you know, that I was going, am, you know, going after and sort of the unique value add. But 
man, I mean, I started out with such high expectations about, you know, how much money I would be able to raise, how big our firm would be in year one, year two, year three, you know, et cetera. And, and that was really crushing from Mm -hmm. a personal perspective because, you know, we're in a really great spot. Um, you know, we have about 10 million under management today. We're in the middle of a $20 million fundraise. Um, we have amazing portfolio companies. We have amazing investors and, and we're investing at a really cool time, which is this, you know, life has totally changed. Anytime you have massive disruption, it's a great time to be in venture capital because all these new things, they need the money. Yeah. All these new things are popping up, happening, launching. It's great. Um, but, you know, big failure, uh, and, you know, I alluded to the, with this, um, you know, with uh, the, just the impression that um, Leslie Blodgett's book made on me was, man, you know, I, I think I pretty much made everyone in my life, including myself, miserable for, for three years, um, setting unrealistic expectations and, and so then we went back and we did some benchmarking and we're like, and so I read Leslie's book and I'm like, this is such a great point. Like, you know what I should do is I should look at like other firms and their histories and just see like, you know, in, in Silicon Valley, the average venture fund, you know, the first time fund is how big, what about the second and the third? And no joke. I mean, I was off by like 10 X. <laughs> And, and so now I'm like, I feel awesome. I, 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 I did actually better than, than the average. So I don't know, maybe it all worked out. And then I was like setting these crazy goals and, you know, and, and, you know, didn't know any better and, and we ended up in a good spot, but I think probably. How um, did you know? What, what was the breaking point? Oh man. Mine, hmm. I wouldn't say it was so much of a, a breaking point as revelation. So, um, well, no, you know what? Breaking point, COVID. COVID. Really? Really? So, because, um, you know, the just the absolute kind of... Um, I would say global terror that was happening. I realized that my like reaction to this global terror was probably uh, numbed by the fact I'm like, why is everybody like freaking out so much? Like life's tough, you know? (laughs) So like, it's like kind of strange reaction to a pandemic where I'm like, you know, I don't know. I guess, you know, it'll be okay because it's been so hard already. Um, yeah. It's kind of a weird, uh, and so that's, I really started to realize like how much I had lost my way with um, work-life balance, uh, which I guess I haven't necessarily changed my habits, but more just my-, my Awareness. Out- yeah, my outlook and my mood. And, um, and then the other thing was just benchmarking, which was, okay, like, am I crazy? I mean, this is hard, but is it supposed to be this hard? And then, you know, actually look at, you know, other, other data, you know, yeah. to, to be more objective um, because my goal setting was not informed um, by anything more than really a handful, you know, honestly, a handful of conversations, which I got some advice, which was, go raise a $10 million fund, put it to work and just like keep going. And then Mm -hmm. I had other advice, which was, oh, you're amazing. You could raise like a hundred million. Like you should do a hundred million. And the hubris is like, well, a hundred sounds better than 10. So that's what I'm going to (laughs) do. Yeah. Don't do that. I, I actually admire though, the confidence I think that that's amazing. I, and I tend to be the eternal optimist. So I tend to think, oh, I can do this too. I mean, a, a small part of me will definitely be in mm-hmm. my brain, but yeah. I'm not going to lie. There is a part of me that's like, oh, hell yeah, I can. Oh yeah. Why, why can't I? 
yes. kind of thing. Yeah. Yes. yes. Yeah. Yes. Which, which can really set you up to be a glutton for punishment. You know, I mean. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, a, I think it's can be a positive and can turn into a negative, right? Because during tough times, I can typically have a positive outlook and I'm guessing you can too. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, interesting. And I'd be curious what our, our listeners experienced during COVID. So for me, when it got really tough at the beginning, I called a couple people, Emily Geiger for one. Yeah. And I was like, hey, and listeners, she's like this brilliant um, brain. And I was like, so what's going to, what do you think is going to pop up from uh, like a new service or product because of mm-hmm. COVID? I was really looking for trends because you know what, Elizabeth, I couldn't stay in the negative part of people are going to die and we're staying at home. And yeah. I had to do a very fast reframe. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. I just couldn't stay in the in the negative long. Yeah. So in staying with that theme, because I do like a positive reframe, what can you name like one interesting business that you, in your mm-hmm. field, maybe can CPG oh, yeah. or whatever that has popped up that people should look at or some trends around, hey, be aware of this because these mm-hmm. things are great. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, we give went, us some insider, some, some pillow talk. Yeah, we, we went through an entire uh, exercise looking category by category at what was changing for, for just people living and therefore who, who was set up to win, yeah. um, who was going to be negatively impacted. So these are obvious things like professional apparel has really had a tough time, you know, non-essential retail. Yes. Um, What was interesting, you know, 35% of American households had never cooked before. So food and beverage has just really changed. Um, There's a, one thing that was surprising to me. um, I thought, oh man, you know, we're going to have, we're going to have just way more attention on mental health. And and we have seen some of that because talk therapy is up. Um, And this is like teletherapy, um, talk therapy, which I love. Uh, But what was interesting is I really dug into it. It's like meditation app downloads are down. What? Because we're not in the rat race. There's been a stillness that has come over our, our lives. You're not pinging all over the planet, you know, in a different hotel room on an airplane. You're not in traffic. Think about that. You're not in traffic. You know, only one in 10 office workers in Manhattan has returned to the office. There's no like hurry up and get ready. And what, what's funny to me is like, this is how I've been living for 15 years. And I feel like the rest of the world is just now trying it out. I'm like, by the way, it's amazing. It's pretty isn't great. It? It's pretty great. Um, you know, I do really like going to the office. I'm not going to lie. I do. Well, and I'm, I'm here right now, but uh, I kicked everybody out March 12th. <laughs> so I just have it to myself, um, which is not bad. But, uh, but I do miss, yeah, I, I miss that. Um, you know, I, I miss being at conferences and, and, you know, con- concerts and, you know, indoor restaurants and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, a lot of things have improved. And so I, I think um, if we just look at some of the, some of the categories that have really changed um, in some unexpected ways, normally in a recession, um, which honestly, right now I'm like, are we in a recession? Are we in a recession? Because I don't think we are. But, but anyway, that's for somebody else above my pay grade. Who cares? Um, (laughs) But normally we would say, oh, you know, spending on consumer durables would be down. But because people are stuck at home, this is a different kind of, right now we're like, oh, we should invest in our home. I'm addicted to the home edit. On, what? Uh, I don't even know this. The God, home edit so on Netflix. Things. Oh my God. It's like TV candy. No, it's, no. it's these women in Nashville that organize people. Oh homes. yeah. I don't love it. I didn't love it. Sorry. No? I watched it. No, Reese Witherspoon. I wasn't that she was their guest. Wasn't uh, that into it. My yeah. daughter, Evelyn goes, mom, I love this show. She's four. 
I love this show. She's like, you know what we should do? We should organize my room. I'm like, I freaking love this show. We're going to watch it every night. <laughs> but so, you know. I love the colors. They have beautiful colors on there. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. But yes. people are investing in right. their homes in ways that were unanticipated. Pet adoptions are up 90 to 180% depending on the state. And that's that's a trend that will stick, right? These are these are now members of your household, right? right. That are going to be around for the next 5, 10, 15 years. Um, yeah. So certain certain sectors are are seeing explosive growth, um, and then others are you know huge shifts. We've seen a lot of productization of beauty services. So you won't get a facial, but you'll use a sheet mask at home. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, especially when salons were were closed initially here. Uh, you're not going to get your hair color. You're going to do root top up, or you're going to try Madison Reed for the first time. Yeah. Uh, guess who tried Madison Reed and couldn't get it because my color was sold out. Oh no. Yeah. But, but not to worry. My, my stylist, uh, dropped some off for me. So it's fine. Um, <laughs> that's really interesting. So do you think those will stick? Yeah. So one thing that you see with, um, well, I'll just stick with like hair care and beauty, for instance, definitely pet. I mean, that's sticking. Yeah, that right. that's a that's a step change and that's a bump that you know you'll you will see that growth. Uh, you know, uh, Nestle uh, will enjoy you know that sixteen percent bump for a while um, in the pet care space, and so will all the entrants. You know, that's what's really exciting. So wait, what's that? What's that? Entrance to the market, new brands that are launching in in pet care, okay. um, or. For instance, we were talking about hair care uh, and skin care. So anytime you see trial, if the product is good, and, and look, I mean, brands are spending so much money just to get you to try their product. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so when something like a pandemic uh, pushes people, forces people to change so many behaviors in such a short period of time, Think about that. I mean, I am like a kid in a candy store right now. I'm like, oh my God, I'm so excited because there are so many shifts that just happened where um, market shares, you know, drastically changed. The places where people buy things or how they're willing to buy is drastically changed. And so they've tried a bunch of new things. Um, they're going to continue to try some new things. And some of that will stick. They will become loyal customers because- yes those brands have delivered like the most important thing, which is some meaningful benefit to you. You're like, wow, the sheet mask is almost as good as a facial, right? Like I'm seeing it. And like one-tenth of the cost. Yeah. Right? Right. Right. Uh, This is amazing. I could talk to you for like 50 more hours. Do you have any closing thoughts for our awesome listeners? Oh, be kinder to yourself. (laughs) This is such an amazing time and opportunity. I think one of the things that I've really noticed, um, you know, your point, like this, you know, you, uh, to reframe and, and really focus on, on some of the positives for me, COVID, you know, I had COVID for uh, a few weeks or that was no fun, but, but the actual, like, Hey, not getting on an airplane all the time for work, being home with my kids, you know, more or being in town, you know, uh, more is great. Being on Zoom instead of on a conference call, which was my life before, um, you know, these have been huge positives. But then the other is like, we're spending more time outside. Yes. Spending more time with like simpler things. Um, Susie Hendrickson, I don't know if you know Susie Hendrickson, Right when uh, we figured out that we all had COVID, she dropped off some puzzles and, oh. you know, we're, we're sitting around the dining room table doing puzzles about, there's one in particular, you got to go get it. It's at Joseph Beth, um, but it's uh, like a hundred years of, of women's uh, rights in, in one puzzle. So love I mean, that. Simpler times. This is not a bad thing. I think Oprah said, like, we've been sent to our rooms, but I think we've been sent to our rooms to think about something, which is maybe we don't need to be so busy. We kind of went from like humans doing to now we are humans being. Being. 
And, and what is that being, um, you know, for you, you were talking, we were talking about goal setting. Um, one of my favorite exercises, uh, which is kind of once a year, actually around this time, I start thinking about my new year's resolutions now, not just for the company, but actually like in every aspect of my life, physical, spiritual, mental, intellectual, social, you know, relationships. And when you think about your one and five and 10 year goals for your life, you know, across that matrix. And it's like, well, man, I don't have anything to, to write for, you know, health goals or something, you know, like health goals that have always been there, drink less alcohol, sleep more, (laughs) right. You know, like exercise. Yeah. Right. Um, like this was the year I'm, I am getting better sleep, but you know, I, I went from like drinking way too much wine to now, you know, one light beer, which is like, but you know what, that's what I need to be doing. That's Uh, not around where I love that. Exactly. So, you know, I think, first of all, I love to be kinder to yourself, but I also loved listeners think about what have you been sent to your room to learn? So for Elizabeth, you know what it is, but for each of us, what have we been sent to our room to learn? Mm-hmm. And that's, I think the, the golden ticket, right? Totally. Totally. Uh, you are awesome. Thank you. Our next conversation needs to be on the social, um, social <laughs> dilemma on Netflix. And you know what? Everybody oh. listening to this probably at the beginning wanted to scream into their headphones. Um, I, I'm going to watch it. Uh, if it's about social media, it um, is, girl. I'm, I'm already uh, in favor there. of of less. I took yeah. Facebook off my home screen. So did like, I. I don't know. In May, it has been life changing. I, you know, you can still hit me up on Facebook, whatever. But I, I I'm not right because you'll check it on your computer someday. Me too. Right, but so, I don't someday. need it. I don't need it 24 seven. My God, like I know. Oh yeah. I know. Got it. Good Got job. It. High five. High five to you. That's really good. <laughs> All right. Thank you. You too. Thank you for being on. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Talk soon. I want to thank everyone behind the scenes, especially Adrian, Donica, and the team at Gwyn Sound. Also, please find us on social media outlets at Fail Forward Pod.